Hi, everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. If you live in a multifamily condominium or cooperative building in Florida that is three stories or higher, you will want to listen carefully to today's episode with engineer Tim Marshall. Tim is the president of AT Design, which he founded in 1986. AT Design provides forensic structural investigations, concrete deterioration and restoration investigations and assessment, roof investigation and consulting, construction management and project administration, hurricane damage inspections, post-tension cable repair, expert testimony, and more. Tim is a Florida registered professional engineer, a Florida building inspector, and a special inspector, which we're going to talk more about that later. Tim received his Bachelor of Engineering from Vanderbilt University. Tim, welcome to Take It to the Board. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So with the passage of the new safety law, Senate Bill 4D in Florida, just how busy are you these days? I'm, I'm surprised I could even get you to, to, to appear on the show. Um, it, it has increased our workload substantially. Um, I think the initial shock of the uh, occurrence of the collapse down in South Florida has kind of quelled down a little, but, you know, our phones are ringing. I imagine our phones as association attorneys are ringing off the hook as well, mostly to, to, for two questions. Actually, I should say three. What are the deadlines? Is there going to be a glitch bill that's going to change all this? My answer to the second one is don't count on a glitch bill that's going to take this away. And thirdly, where can we find a good engineer and a good reserve study company? So I'm so glad you're joining us today for that last question. In terms of the milestone inspections, the law is tied to buildings being three stories or higher. Now, I do get questions from clients a lot saying, well, how is that measured? Because sometimes we have a two-story residential structure sitting on top of a parking structure, which would then raise it to the three-story or higher threshold. Are you getting that question? And do you have any answer in terms of measurement? You know, that's an excellent question. Generally, the surrounding uh, roadways is, is, is ground, you know, zero, 30 feet or above three stories or above uh, classifies it. So if you have, as you said, in your particular scenario, a residence or a building on a single-story parking garage, it would be a three-story structure. It would. Okay. So folks, you heard it here. Can you walk us through the process of the newly required milestone inspections, which by the way, have a December 31st, 2024 deadline for buildings constructed July 1st, 92 or earlier? I want to say that again, if your building is three stories or higher and it was constructed before July 1st, 1992, you have to have a milestone inspection. And a lot of people, Tim, they don't really know what what that involves. Okay, well, just as a little background, the milestone inspection really has is, is a new law, but it has come in post the 40-year recertification program that was in Broward and Dade County which means that any building, threshold building that is older than 40 years had to have these, what is now called a milestone inspection, but it was a recertification and then have it on a reoccurring basis. After the tragedy in South Florida, this went to statewide because, you know, we have buildings along the coast um, from South Florida all the way to the Panhandle and up to Jacksonville. And they essentially look at it as a report card from a licensed individual architect or engineer to provide a structural report card to the building department where they can they can evaluate the condition of the building based on that. 
for years and years, only Broward County and Miami-Dade, that, that's two counties out of 67 Florida counties, had that requirement. You said the 40-year certification and then the 10 years after that, the 50-year certification. Any idea why that was not statewide previously? With the milestone inspections now, it's going to apply to every building, every, as you said, threshold building throughout the state. But any idea why why it was only Broward and, and Miami-Dade who felt this was necessary? I would generally say because they're the oldest buildings in the uh, state, starting with Miami and then to Fort Lauderdale. Really, the development of the state really started down there. Now, that's not to say that Tampa had, doesn't have old buildings or you know Jacksonville, but the number of buildings in themselves is much less than in, in Dade and Broward County. Right, and taller buildings too, I imagine, because I've Absolutely. been throughout the state. We have the highest concentration of high-rises. Absolutely. So there's two phases, if I'm understanding this correctly, to the milestone inspection. If phase one of the milestone inspection reveals substantial structural deterioration, then a more in-depth phase two is required. And the statute does, Tim, have a definition of substantial structural deterioration. Again, it's something that you're going to need to discuss with your engineer. But as an engineer, what are you looking for to determine if there is substantial structural deterioration in that phase one? I'm looking for any type of signs of damage of the, what I call the supporting elements, uh, columns, beams, things of that nature that is not just what I would call a maintenance, which is more related to concrete deterioration, things of that nature. So um, when you have significant structural cracks in your building from differential settlement, or you have uh, your columns and your ground floor having large spalls or displacement, those are issues that need to get addressed. And that would constitute an immediate potentially shoring and things of that nature. Windows and doors, structural, non-structural. I get this question all the time. I'm not an engineer. That is an excellent question. And that (laughs) is, is really since Hurricane Andrew, with all the wind load provisions and the building code, the exterior envelope has become a structural element. I equate it to the piece of Swiss cheese. You have a building, you've got holes in your Swiss cheese. They need to be filled by uh, compliant components, i.e. hurricane-rated windows. And when they go bad or when they're bad or when they don't exist, you are potentially having a you know a weak point on your structure. A lot, I run into it a lot where um, I go into a building and we have 60 or 70 percent of the units have replaced to compliant windows and the 40 percent still have their, you know, their 45 year or their 50 year old windows, which by definition have exceeded their useful life. They're structurally, they are depleted. The, uh, their ability to resist weather has been significantly depleted because of the wearing out of gaskets and mole hairs and the components that make them um, watertight. Many times they've been wet sealed. So that is a significant uh, issue related to high rise, all, all structures. And it is specifically called for in the milestone inspection. And I can understand that because specifically in a windstorm or in terms of moisture getting into the building. But for a non-engineer like me and the average layperson, you think about the apertures, a window or a door. And if it's gone, it's not going to destabilize the building on a, at least I'm asking this question, on an otherwise sunny day. I think that's why most people don't think of that as a structural element. 
That's it's a very difficult question. Yeah. The exterior envelope is it's important that that stays intact during windstorm events. Of course, in a sunny day, it doesn't doesn't matter. But the skin of a building, the outside of the cube or box, whatever you want to call it, is important to be maintained so you don't have what they call internal pressures and essentially the wind load pressures when it when it breaches the outside, the internal pressures in the building increase and it creates other issues like the backside of the building windows will blow out, more moisture infiltration. So, but the element itself, like a column or a beam, the exterior element of a building, envelope of a building, is an is a structural element. And this, and I know I'm gonna have people listening to this who are gonna say, now wait a second. Our documents make the, the apertures part of the unit boundaries, and that's the ordinary maintenance, repair, and replacement obligations of the owners. So please, for everybody listening, this does not mean we're saying throw your, your the, the provisions in your documents out the window, get a legal opinion, because there's a difference here between what's required under the milestone inspection and the structural integrity reserve study and what may be required for regular maintenance, repair, and replacement under your documents. So my little my little disclaimer today. The problem, it's not a problem, but it's a conflict where the milestone inspection report specifically calls for you to go and look and to render an opinion as to the, the viability of the windows, okay? And the issue that you have is this, is if you have a building, like I said, that's um, 60% replaced and 50% are originals, 40% original, and you get myself to write your report and I say these windows are deficient, it could negatively impact the association. So it's a very, it's a requirement by the state, but it also not to, and intentionally doing it puts, you know, more liability onto the association. And it's one of the things why the building departments and the state have all come up to this, that they want the buildings to be safe and not just a structural sense, oh, a, a windstorm or weatherability resistant aspect of that is also because you're only as strong as your weakest link. And, and in Florida, this has been an ongoing concern for the legislature for years. Years ago, they passed an amendment to 718, which said that a majority of your owners can vote to allow the board to install hurricane protection. So they can install impact glass and impact doors. So for those where the people still, you know, you may, like you said, in your example, 40% still have the old potentially non-functioning windows. In that case, speak to your association attorney. Perhaps you should be taking that vote to allow the board, to allow the association to install impact glass windows. If the, if the penthouse unit had original windows and you're under that stack, you know, all bets are off. You know, that's the weak link. If you're above it, it's okay, but you're below it, it's not very fair. So don't be the weak link. <laughs> that's right. So let's say you've done your phase one uh, in- inspection, Tim, and you have found um, significant structural deterioration and you've put it in your port. Now, what's involved with phase two? Well, phase two would be to further determine the amount of damage and also the criticalness of the damage that you have identified. This has been an important part of mine that I have told my clients is that this is a report card to the state as to the structural integrity of a building. But when I write a report card to the state, that does not give me the information to go out and 
bid it out to fix the damage that we have done. Even though it's an excellent program to to maintain the buildings and, and let the state know where we're at, it doesn't help the association in moving forward. So we do a phase one, we identify, let's just say the building is in generally good condition, but we have, you know, the ground floor columns have some work that need to be done. And we go from there. Okay, so we report to the the association, I turn in my report to the city or the building official. Mm-hmm. Okay, we go with the second phase to see the severity. At that point, it's got to be quantified because when you go out to bid, the repair quantity is based on what we have to repair and the contractors bid on those quantities. So the phase two is really a two-phase phase two because oh. I can say how we're going to fix it, one, but that's one thing, but bidding out you have to have the quantities to do that so it's uh it's kind of a one is a municipality words the other is really the uh where the rubber hits the road but one is visual correct and phase two involves does it involve destructive testing would you actually be removing concrete or it could involve destructive testing i mean quite frankly and when you come when it comes to uh concrete that you want to make sure that if you could do destructive testing you know, as to the extent you don't want to, if there was a column that you said, you know, was in the phase one that needed work, I would not do destructive testing on a column that was not properly short. So you would have to get a contractor and you have to do that. If there was um, some window concerns or cracks in walls and we didn't know about moisture, that's a different story. But on a structural element, you know, it kind of mandates that you uh, bring in protections also if you're going to do destructive testing. But I find that the destructive testing more so is to determine the extent of the damage rather than the severity of the damage. You know, I noticed a significant change under the new law. Previously, with the 40-year certification, the engineer would deliver that report to the board. Under the milestone inspection, I believe you're tasked with delivering that report directly to the local building official. Is that correct? Yes, a signed and sealed document, and we do both. I mean, we're working for the association, so they get a copy, and we would bring it to the uh, to the building official. But in the past, that wasn't the case, and I'm speculating here, and I'm thinking it's because the legislature has identified perhaps some communities where they got reports, and then they didn't do anything with them, or they didn't do enough. So in this regard, the engineer is also alerting the local building official what the condition is of that building. In fact, the the old the I'm going to say old um, the the past forty year recertification that had to be turned into the to the building department also by the association or by the engineer. I, I think it was the I, association I, who. I, I think it was required by the association, but uh, for my terms, I would do that because you know. We misplaced it. We didn't get around to it. We didn't whatever. And somehow we would get drawn back in, you know, so I I did that because in some respects, especially if it was, you know, serious um, damage, you know, we have a responsibility for public safety, you know, under our licensure. And so um, my personal preference would be to to bring it to myself, but it, it was not a requirement. And there was a lot of problems. Phase one can be performed by a licensed engineer. Can an engineering intern help with the phase one? Yes, he can. And and it can be by an architect also. Oh, yes. But an engineering intern, you know, 
absolutely under the direct charge, as it says in the Florida statutes of the engineer, can perform under the supervision of a, of a PE. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be an engineering intern? How much schooling does an engineering intern have? Well, what happens is that they have, you know, four years at accredited university, and then they come out and they take a, a test on, you know, essentially the engineering classes that they took. That gives them, that qualifies them for the engineering intern. Then they need five years experience under a PE. So what happens is, is that they come in and and the engineer has to make a determination. And, and let's say he goes out and they start it together. And I like to do that as you go together. So everyone's kind of on the same page. If he goes somewhere and says, we have a situation or, you know, I'm not comfortable with that or this, you need to come see that, then then I would go through. But ultimately, the responsibility falls on the PE to produce the document and to sign off on the document as to the the integrity issues of the building. Okay, so that's phase one can be conducted by a licensed architect, a licensed engineer, or perhaps an engineering intern. Phase two if, you know, Senate Bill 4D was was drafted during a special session, I think they had 72 hours to cobble this thing together. So needless to say, there's some improvement. We can do some clarification next session. But one of the questions I have, it seems to me that you need a special inspector to perform phase two of the milestone inspection. Because again, elsewhere in 553, it refers to special inspectors and threshold buildings, and even Senate Bill 4D in one part refers to inspector. There may be a clarification, and I, I was, I've been a special inspector since 1993. In fact, I got it very early on when they started that program. And that really had to do with the development in South Florida and how the building departments could not perform all the required inspections. So they came up with that. I am both a a BN, which is a a building inspector, and I'm a special inspector, which means at one point I was a special inspector so I could do a threshold building, but I couldn't look at a house. It was kind of ridiculous. But, you know, the fact of the matter is this. An inspector in sense is a person that will go out and inspect the work being done or in accordance with the specification. In terms of evaluating and assessing damage, that is an engineer. That may be one of the corrections that they make. Uh, There is a law saying that if you work on a threshold building, you have to be a special inspector or a threshold inspector. That rule is, I would say, is marginally followed. What's a threshold building, Tim? A threshold building is a building um, over three stories or 2,500 square feet or occupancy of over 400. There's there's like six. Rooms. I mean, if we were doing a Venn diagram, though, right, right, <laughs> that right. would fit right in the middle of what we're talking about here. Right. But, you know, all the concrete restoration jobs on a, mm-hmm. on a, on a threshold building, by law, there should be a threshold inspector, which... You know, there aren't that many. And to to qualify for this uh, threshold inspector, you have to have both design and inspection and spherics. And that's what's difficult about it. So a person that had 20 years experience in the field, but very little design background cannot qualify for that. Or someone who has a lot of design background and very little inspection background. So, you know, it's a hard um, designation, license to get, much more difficult um, nowadays. And I think that 
there's more engineers, PEs, than there are threshold inspectors. Well, you took the words right out of my mouth because, listen, when we knew SB4D was going to pass, everybody was was concerned. There's not going to be enough Florida-licensed architects and engineers to do all these milestone inspections because the deadline is the end of 2024, right? But now I want to add this into the mix because I've spoken to a lot of very, I'm not going to name them, but a lot of very large engineering, Florida engineering companies, they do not have special inspectors on staff. So uh, how many special inspectors do you know of that are in Florida? There are a lot. Again, it's a difficult licensure to get because of the amount of design and field experience you have. They have to have both. So it's really the best of both worlds. But, you know, I, I personally know four or five that I could name off the top of my head. But I think it's something that's kind of kind of gone by the wayside because you should have a threshold. Like I said, if you're working on a threshold building, you need to have a threshold inspection license. Well, you may know four or five, but there's thousands of associations. I will tell you, I'm telling my clients that when they are, you know, vetting engineers, I'm telling them they really should ask if there is a special inspector on staff because better safe than sorry if it gets clarified that you do need a special inspector for phase two of the milestone you know at least you're already doing business with an engineering firm that can supply that i think you're going to get a lot busier in the coming (laughs) (laughs) after this podcast comes out i did want to ask you cost and i know it's different for you know number you know size of the building number of units but are there any baseline that we could let our listeners know in terms of the cost for the phase one, because everybody has to do the phase one. Phase two is different because that's going to be tied to the to the structural damage. But for phase one, any ballpark estimates on costs? Um, it, it's difficult. And I'm just going to kind of give you background. When when the catastrophe happened in, in Surfside, you know, I said to my clients and, and new and old, I said, look, you know, it's going to be better for you if I come out on an hourly basis and walk around. I'm going to walk around, and quite frankly, if you've maintained your building, you know, there shouldn't be much damage. It's just a time thing. I have to take notes, photographs, and then I have to prepare a report. In in terms of cost-wise, it, it should be relatively cheap. And I would rather say that than put a dollar value mm-hmm. because the time frame to do it. Now, where the issue is, is... When you look at a building and I walk through the hallways and the common areas, go up on the roof, walk through the parking garage, things of that nature, easily accessible. But part of the building consists of the individual units. How many units do you go into? If there's 100 units in the building, I'm going to say you're going to go 20 to 30% minimum. If you find damage, you need to go to more. But again, too, if those parameters are defined at the beginning of the phase one, you can put a dollar value to it. I don't want to go in and get in something over my head. I'm losing money. I protect myself. At the same time, the association doesn't want to pay more money than really what should happen. And that's kind of, if you give a time frame estimate with a dollar value where you mm-hmm. think and then go through, that's where that is. Then you have to write the report. I mean, I'm sure now all engineering firms have come up with a format in writing the reports and going forward. So, you know, that kind of streamlines that. But there is a lot of information. I just finished one on an 11-story building. I think it was 10 to 14 pages. We had photographs. It was about a 25-page document, which takes time to compile. That just doesn't come out. The old 40-year recertification kind of had a checklist format, and, and, and I'm sure that you've seen this. 
a $500 40-year recertification, couple checks, oh, this, 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 boom. And that's kind of what got us where we're at. Absolutely, because that was a template where it was a checklist. Nothing leapt out at anybody in terms of, and, and listen, I don't know about you, but I don't know that it's reasonable to assume that volunteer board members or even managers are going to sift through multiple pages, multiple pages of exhibits. And even if they do read it, are they going to read it carefully? And are they going to understand it? Because most of them are not engineers. So after the Surfside tragedy, where it was the standard, you know, checklist, poor, fair, good, um, you know, on everything. Is there anything different where there's, you know, a cover page where there's highlighting if there's a life safety issue where you move that up the list? No, you know, bearing in mind that people don't have the longest attention span. Okay. So I'm just going to say this life safety and engineering are not two good words that, that phrase that go together. Anytime anyone references life safety, it is a critical issue. And I'm not saying that people don't think there's a integrity issue as opposed to life safety. When you use the term life safety in my book, you're, you know, that is that is an immediate issue that needs to get dealt with. As to the template, and we can come back to that, as to the template, everyone has a different template. I like to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. You know, let's start on the roof, talk about the structures, go down through the, the basement, talk about how the skeleton of the building, it's a conventional reinforce, it's post-tension, cast in place elements, things of that nature, reinforced masonry walls, stucco covered, things of that nature. Make it easy. When we come to the evaluation section and we go back to those individual units, that's where it should be able to say in writing, not too technical, you know, this is what we saw. There is a problem at the end of the report, there should be a recommendation and it should address and maybe prioritize those repairs. And that's I think you might want I think you should consider moving it to the front of the report. (laughs) First page. (laughs) And then go through everything. I I hear that. That could be it too. So I'll take that uh, on advice (laughs) from counsel. (laughs) So you know what? I imagine because we were just talking about cost, the cost might be reduced if you are given comprehensive maintenance records. Is is that correct? As opposed to a building that has shoddy or missing maintenance records. Does that make your job easier? And easier, you know, the plans, the full set of plans would be great because you like to look at that. You like kind of once you're going in, but more times than not, I, I, I run across the thing, well, you're the engineer, you know, yeah. you need to figure it out. And, and it's like, look, the, like more a puzzle. We yeah. get, the easier my job is, and the less time I've got to do to, to, you know, evaluate the problem, you know, but you go in there with an open eye and and the plans absolutely as you go there, because one, if you can look at the plans before, then you kind of know. But if you do see a problem, looking at the plans will then tell you, I recently had a building that was in relatively good shape, but the stairwells were cracking. And I learned that instead of four columns in the stairwell, there was only three, which caused the stairwell to bend and create these cracks, which is, it was a structural issue, but it was not a, a, a integral part or a, an integrity issue because of the, they, they chose to build it without a fourth column. But you know it was missing because you looked at the plans. Absolutely. That's important. That's important. I, I also want to mention to the residents listening to the podcast that you have an obligation to allow the engineering crew to come in and ins- make these inspections when when you're compiling your milestone inspection. Often we have people in units, they're not the most cooperative, not the most helpful 
when it comes to, to, to these kind of projects, but it's important. Well, I'm wearing, I'm wearing a white shirt today, but usually I come in and I got a black hat on. <laughs> and it costs money. And that's, you know, that's kind of the, but, you know, quite frankly, I've been in business for, you know, 36 years. Um, you know, I find that I, you hire me to do a job and probably four out of 10 times, they don't want to hear what I'm saying. I mean, well, that's, and, hopefully right. that's and changing. That's, I, I do my job. So, you know, getting back to this whole thing about the dollar value and what happens, I think if you get a budget for time and how much you want to do, they understand that you can get it as opposed to just a dollar value because you don't really understand what it is. But the second phase, that's when the rubber hits the road. If we find damage and we go through, then that can be more pinpointed for cost to perform and specific locations. You know, you say they don't want to hear what you have to say. And I've had so many great guests on the podcast, including real estate professionals, bankers, insurance people. This is going to, this is going to hopefully change when new potential new purchasers start putting a premium on the safety features in the building, rather than just looking at the, the floor layout of their unit and the view they start looking around and they start asking questions about when was the last time you did an engineering inspection, looking around and seeing what, what things look like. Does the stucco look like it's in good shape? Asking about the roof, asking about the generator, the water pump and everything. I don't know if we're ever going to get there because most people just think about what does my unit look like? Is the lobby pretty? And what does the view look like? Well, I, I would say that's probably the majority, but People that have changed condos or have gotten assessments, every job I have, there's always the new resident that bought, you know, eight months ago. And now there's a huge assessment. And I had no, you know, true or not, I had no idea that this was happening and whatever. So, you know, I, I agree. I think everyone is getting more educated. The boards are more educated. There's more requirements. The, it, it has just become much more uh, complicated a process now trying to meet the requirements, trying to be as open-minded and as mm-hmm. transparent as possible. And, and that's where we are. It, and look, if we come out on the other side with some of the safest housing stock in the country, that's going to be a good thing. Right. So I know you've done, Tim, a lot of your companies done a lot of 40 and 50 year certifications. And I'm, I'm sure you've done a few very recently before the new law passed. Are you being asked by your clients whether or not those recent 40 and 50 year certifications comply with the milestone inspection requirements? I have not come across that question, but I have thought about it. And, you know, luckily for me, I never did the checklist. I always wrote because I just don't think it gives a good enough uh, example of providing professional engineering services. So my 40 and 50 year certification packages were more detailed anyway. So it wasn't a hard thing making it and meeting the milestone. So, but that's a good question because I think just like you said, when these laws come in, there is going to be modifications and there is no provision to say, if you finished it within this, this is acceptable. And the format is going to modify it. They may come out with an outline. Now, I know that the city of Boca Raton, their ordinance 5589, has a much more detailed um, description of what they want to see in their report. And that, to me, and I've done some there already, and that's a pretty good outline. I, I just had to ask it because we're getting asked that question. And the answer is maybe, right? Because some engineers like you, 
have had very expansive reports, even prior to this law passing, while others, it may be too narrow. And so they may have to do an add-on in terms of additional, you know, structural inspection. Right. I agree. So engineers, and correct me if I'm wrong, are required to notify the local building department if they find life safety issues in the building. Have you ever had to do that? Why just actually working on a job right now that we had a corner column that we um, had to show what I consider uh, emergency short. So we to bypass the permit process. I went to the building official and assistant building official and told him of our, you know, the situation. And they pushed through the permit for that column and that permit to shore the column and, and repair the column went bigger for concrete so they they kind of reviewed it after the fact if you will but they they issued it very quickly and yes i have done that but other than you know waiving or or expediting the permitting process what should the role of local government be in your opinion in terms of ensuring that these buildings these residential buildings are safe well the reason why we have these 40 year or formerly 40 year now the milestone is because there's not enough qualified engineers on city staffs to be able to evaluate. So the mandate is to give a report card to the building official uh, as a report card of the structural integrity of the building. And that's really what it's about. So they can note it because they don't have enough, they don't have the staff to do that. One of the reasons what led to the problem in Surfside was the fact that you know, they weren't able to go bird dog it when it was given to them and, and they didn't follow through on it. Well, I was going to say, how do we ever have construction defects? If the work's being inspected every step of the way, right, properly inspected, how do you ever wind up with construction defects? The problem is, is there's not a project on earth where someone sit. well, I can't say that, but for the most part, they see a majority, they see a representative sampling of it, and then they go away. You know, you hire qualified people down the line. You go through and for two hours a day, you go and inspect. Well, for six hours, you're you're not there or you're doing another inspection and they're over here burying something. So, you know, unfortunately, and I do a lot of expert witness stuff and the 558, you know, construction defects. Perfect example is the post tension anchors, cutting off the post tension anchors. I mean, the caps are only so deep. If you don't cut them off too long, you mm-hmm. can't cap them. It starts the whole deterioration process and we're there. That's been going on for 15 years, 20 years, and, and, and the repeated suits going after the people. So quality of contracting, oversight, and the responsibility down the line, not just the inspector to make sure it's done right. You know, the superintendent of the job has to look at it. You know, the foreman of the site, uh, the crew has to look at it. And um, a lot of times for myself in the construction fields, I you know, I think I'm a professional babysitter, not a professional engineer, because... We've gone over it. We've done this. What happened? Where? What were you thinking? This is the 12th balcony. Why, why did it change? Right. Wow. You know, when I was installing just hurricane shutters in my house, the local inspector came out and they had covered something up already. And he said, rip it out. I can't tell from what you've already done. I want it ripped out so I can see and reinstall. And the contractor was muttering, saying they never do that. And I said, well, they're doing it now. And I wonder if that's not the case on bigger, big construction jobs. If something's already been covered up, finished, covered over with concrete, how often is it does an inspector say, you know what, you skipped a step here? 
you need to rip this out. Generally, all the high rises have threshold inspect special inspectors that act in the city because the city can't see it. So, you know, if I'm doing a 200 unit, 400 unit condominium, I'm looking at one thing for two hours in the morning. I'm going to go look at another area, you know, because I've got to do my own. So perfect example of that is the installation of windows. It's kind of a pet peeve I have. You have a 40-year-old window. It allows air in. It's, it's chatters. Someone puts a brand new hurricane window in, you're, you're happy. That doesn't mean it's installed properly. It's just a better window installed. So we have had probably the single biggest component that we've had problems with with installation, not watching them, is windows. Mm-hmm. Because the what are the two things? They will leak water, you know, because the caulk will eventually pull away or they, they're just installed improperly. They're not, they won't operate properly. The state of Florida rightfully focused on inspecting older buildings and making sure that associations are reserving money to pay for the, you know, ongoing maintenance and repairs. But to your recent point, I didn't see anything about budgeting more for local government to add building inspectors. I mean, even when we just had two, <laughs> even when we just had two counties, Broward and Miami-Dade, I had some clients that received the notice for 40-year certification five or more years late. They got them on their 45th birthday from, from the county or the city. You know, that was even before the Surfside tragedy that the, the local government was just not up to the task. Yeah, and, you know, with the advent of computers, and once you know your CO date, it's an automatic printout. But you're absolutely right. Those times have changed. What department is going to have the ability to read 500 structural inspection reports? I mean, you know, when they come in. So, you know, it goes down the line. I think it's a great idea, but at the same token, too, the workload is going to be phenomenal you know, what they may do or they should do in the future. And again, too, it's a new law and it's going to be um, modified, made better, is that there should be a report and then a checklist that can easily warn the building departments that this is not just a standard building, you know, it needs to be looked at and then they can read the report. But, you know, I wouldn't want to be hired from the guy in the city that just reads reports and, and red flags it up and then sets up the inspection. So there's a, this is the first step and that is going to streamline eventually, but that may be where there'll be report. And when you turn it in, there's a checklist of 15 items that will keep a score or whatever. And then we go from there. But one thing you did bring up, the structural reserve study, and I've had a lot of questions about that, and that is a very difficult one. And I know it is a very important one because irregardless of evaluating a building, realizing that you have to do it, when the dollar value comes in, that's really when the pain starts. How are you going to evaluate replacing the floor slab? We can estimate and give you estimated costs right now with the way the market is and products and um, availability and, and things of that need a little off the chain. But as an engineer, we do that. We do cost estimates. When we do evaluation, we will give you a projected cost of your project. But isn't that dependent? I'm sorry, Tim. On, like for, let's take concrete restoration, for example. Isn't that a per unit price? How will you know which, which let's take 100 balconies, maybe 60 are absolutely fine, 40 are in desperate need of restoration? Well, or are you just going to assume you're going to do everything at one time? What happens is this. You have to look, you know, you have to write the book. If you want to pick out a chapter, at least when you have the book, you know what you can do. 
And that goes back to the phase one, phase two. The phase one doesn't get you anywhere other than you need to go to a phase two and you meet the criteria that you have to turn in the city. Once you determine there's damage, then the, the rubber hits the road. But if I'm writing a report on the damage, it really doesn't do any good. And this is what I have said to my clients. I said, look, I can do a walk around and tell you there are issues or not and be able to write a letter. But the next phase, if we see damage, and it, need, it needs to be quantified, because when it's quantified, then we can go to bid. You, we can write the letter for phase two to the city, and now I have quantities, and I can go to bid and put the bid package together. And that is really, you know, if I would say it would be phase three would be the bid package. And that may require additional investigation. So when you go to a phase two and do destructive testing, which would be, sounding balconies and going to more balconies and things of that nature, that's the time that they should do it and not a third round where you can, the association could be charged for the same thing that would should have happened in phase two. That's where I'm at. You know, let's just, I'd rather let you know up front where it is. And, and some people may determine we'll wait for that. But as soon as I write my letter in the phase two or do some selective demolition or whatever it requires and say, oh, we have damage, you need to fix it. Now we have to go investigate it and find out what the quantity is. You've been doing this for a while. How many associations do you think opinion shop? We don't like what Tim said. We don't like what Tim had to say here. Let's get a peer review. Does that happen often? Or or have you been asked to give a peer review of somebody else's report? I have been asked a couple of times. I've testified on the concrete jobs that have gone bad. What I find is, and what's been my experience, when I come in on relatively small, large jobs, you know, anything at $2 million or above, when you come in and do an honest investigation, give them a detailed cost analysis, 85 line items, we've got balcony drawings, let's go look around. Let's, and they say to us, well, you know, we don't know if that's whatever, or, or don't call us, we'll call you back. And then the second opinion may verify, which is rare, a second opinion comes in, it's lower, we'll go with a lower number, and then two years later, I'll run into the president, or and this has happened, go, you know what, you hit the number right on the head or whatever. So I recommend, if you're not comfortable, to get a second opinion. Absolutely. But I th- find that if the second opinion comes in less, then the first opinion is is out of the job and the second opinion does it. I mean, given what's at stake here, I think the, the goal is to be as robust with your engineering inspection as possible. And and I look at it a different way. To be conservative, okay? You know, if I see a crack or I see spalling or I see PT work or, you know, we see roof issues, to be conservative is to protect the association and protect myself, really. Not to the fact that we're going to CYA and cover and, you know, it's going to be X, but it's conservative. If you see two square feet, don't mark down two. You mark down three or four, depending on where it is and whatever. And when it all adds up, you know, it's a conservative number. But when we go to bid and let's say the job is $850,000, but when we're done, it's, you know, $1.4 million when, you know, we're closer. And that's the problem is people really just look at the dollar value rather than oh, the, yeah. the effort or the effect of the damage. And that's true across the board in so many different ways when it comes to the way boards sometimes think. Everything's so highly commoditized. What's the what's the bottom line? What's the dollar? Right. I want to switch. We really have to have a contingency. If you don't spend it, you don't spend it, but you have it available. 
Tim, what's your engineering fee to do the project administration? I, I tell them, well, usually we tell everyone 10%. Okay, I'm going to charge between 4 and 8% depending on the size of the job. If it's a $5 million job, I'm gonna, it's going to be 4%. But you know what? It just gets you more in preparation of when you start chipping it open. And that's hopefully where the structural integrity reserve is going to come into play and kind of change that mindset because the money will hopefully be there as they start collecting it. You're right. With this exception, if I have a good building and let's say they did a major job five years ago and they hire me and we have some minor spalling, this and that, to base a structural reserve study on putting money away on essentially small damage, it's not, you can't substantiate it. Now, in your brain, you can say, well, you know, look, it's a large building. If we said we're going to put $50,000 a year in 20 years, we'll have a million dollars. If not before, we'll, we'll do the, you know, because when buildings continually do maintenance after they have a, usually it's after one big job, they'll start with the maintenance program. The maintenance cost should come down. But it's hard when you come into a building and there's not much damage and it's an older building and you know there's going to be it. It's a substantiation of the number. And that really is for us engineers a very difficult point because it's so new to try to reserve. For me, I would have to substantiate why I said it. Because today or when I did our investigation, we did not locate much damage. But Generally, every five to seven years, you're going to have some degree of concrete restoration. Do your balconies have tile with no waterproofing on? Well, if your building is 30 years old and you don't have waterproofing on your balconies, it's just a matter of time before that hits. Well, how much is that number? Right. How do you apportion the, you know, and that's where the difficulty is because we do reserve studies too. And, you know, we have. 12 years left of the service life, I need $1,500 in eight years and I'll get my fully you know, funded reserve for that particular item. But with the concrete, it's all subjective. You know, the other part of that, that is I have a job, big job in Boca right now where they are embarking on a large concrete restoration, elevator replacement, roof replacement, painting, things of that nature. And, I, and you know, they're looking at large expenditures. And I said, Look at it this way. When we finish this line of work, you will have the full reserve life of all your components. So your expenditures are going to be minimum as opposed to a a condominium who did a big job 12, 15 years ago, hasn't saved a penny. And and everything's coming up. The estimated. So you're going to spend a lot on a very subjective analysis of a dollar value. I I say the same thing. Up until now, we've been talking about you discussing your findings with the board. Okay, here's what I've done. Here's what it looks like. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about when you have to go speak to the members. Because I will tell you, Tim, that, you know, when I hear a board member or a manager say, yeah, there's not a problem with the building. I, I say, what are you basing that on? Well, the report, I said, are you the engineer who prepared the report? Well, no. Please, board members, managers, don't interpret those reports. You're not engineers. By the way, I do have a few engineers on boards. And I say, don't don't wear two hats here. Get the actual engineer out to your meeting and let him or her discuss the report 
directly with your members. Uh, hopefully people care enough to show up to these meetings when it's something as important as, you know, now the milestone inspection before that, a 40 or 50 year certification. Have you attended a lot of those meetings? And then my second part of that question is, how do you impress upon the people listening if you have found structural deterioration? I find the best thing is to have um, a PowerPoint presentation because pictures sp- speak a thousand words. I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing how little visual people are. They, they can't visualize it. So what you do is you visualize it and you kind of teach them concrete one-on-one. This is a problem. This is where it is. For me, I go in and I don't have any agenda other than to tell them the, the truth, the legitimate truth. So I have no problem. People generally want to hear, usually in a meeting, let's say there's 50 people, there's 45 that want to hear what's being said, five don't want to pay, disrupt, whatever. So, and I've dealt with that. That's that's not an issue. That's condominium life. The issue is, is to put a, a straight spin on it, visual aids, and for lack of better terms, kind of dummy it down. Keep it basic. They don't need to know any other engineering terms. Keep it basic so the housewife who just lost her husband, who can understand that there's problems and the building's not going to fall down, but there's problems that you have to fix. I find that, you know, you get through the ruckus, especially on the bigger jobs, when you can get the the, the 5% out of the way um, and let them calm down, that people want to hear and they want to know what they're in for. And with the climate after the, the collapse in Surfside, people want to hear. You know, they don't want any part about what happened. Now, they're not happy about it, but I find them listening. I, I think it's harder to talk about windows replacement <laughs> than it is concrete. I mean, concrete, well, when's it going to fall down? Well, it's not going to fall down, and there's there's more years, and we're not going to do that. But, you know, the the window, I find, is it, might, it operates. I can see through it. It's a window. You know, that's, right. that's where right. it is. So. Let's talk about falling down. So I've seen in some reports, concrete deterioration will accelerate, right? Right. Without any additional language, when is this deterioration going to accelerate and what does it mean? So to to a lay person, if you say, and you're at a meeting or someone's at a meeting, they say, well, the concrete's, of course, it's going to, unless you do something, unless you repair it, it's going to continue to deteriorate. For some people, that just means it's going to be an eyesore. It's not going to be dangerous. It's just going to be an eyesore. And I don't feel like paying to make it look pretty. How do you impart upon people that there is a connection between concrete deterioration and possible, you know, impact to the structural integrity of the building? Well, I, I would I use this analogy. It's like an old car. You know, the car could be 25 years old, rust holes in it, needs a paint job, you know, it's got ball tires, but guess what? I can go to the store in it and I can get, it will get me home. That, you know, in a sense, it's like with a building. Concrete is a sponge. It absorbs moisture. Salt-laden moisture will attack any of the ferrous elements, the, the steel reinforcement, post-tension. And what happens is the law, it's like you pay me now or pay me later. If you do it early, fix it, it's cheaper. If you implement preventive measures, i.e. waterproof coatings on balconies to, you know, uh, stop the water from getting in the the horizontal surfaces, those are all going to save you money in the long run. So to me, when I go to a building that's 25 years old, there's 
concrete damage. They've never waterproofed. They haven't assessed for anything. They've just done the handyman stuff. You know, I, I, I tell them, look, I can't tell you, is this balcony going to collapse? No, it's not going to collapse. But could a piece fall off the edge and hit someone on the waterproof? Absolutely. And that's going to happen. And I'm sure that's already happened. We just haven't heard about it. You know, I, I don't mix words. You know, I'm there to tell them the truth. If it was my house, I would fix it. That's the problem in the shared ownership community is you don't, you know, with 100 units, let's say two people per, you don't have all those people making the decisions. You have a representative board that's hopefully making the right decisions. But then again, you also have a significant percentage of the membership saying we want you to do X. And if you don't, we're going to get you off the board and we're going to get in people who agree with us. I do want to ask you. People that want to do X and then they get off the board because they're spending the money. So, right. Uh, you know, I, I've been on I've been on both sides of that, and that's changed with reports to the building department with phase one and phase two. The inspectors now, you know, an electrical inspector go in and see spalling, go back and tell the the building that he saw spalling, and then you know you get a call from the building department. So, you know, everyone is is still kind of shell shocked of the tragedy that happened, but it's a good thing in the long run. Because we will have, we will have safer housing stock. You you mentioned water and its impact on concrete. Two issues. One, we'll start with the easy. Well, this may not be the easy one. Is it advisable, ever advisable, to lay flooring on top of concrete balconies, or does any type of flooring contribute to concrete deterioration? Well, in, in a coastal region, there is absolutely no question about it. Any horizontal concrete surface has to be waterproof. There's no question about it. We are using stronger concrete, and the stronger the concrete, the less dense it is. So it's less susceptible to moisture, but it is still a sponge, and it will get into the concrete. So if you're going to have a floor, put flooring down, you need to put a waterproof membrane under it. Because, you know, it used to be the outdoor, indoor, outdoor carpet, get rid of that. Then it's now it's a tile. Well, if you take tile off, you'll see that the, you know, the tile will be dry and underneath is wet. It holds water on the deck just like carpet did. It's much nicer finish. And, you know, back in the in the 80s when they said get rid of the indoor, outdoor, use that. Well, you, they told me to put this on. Well, it's still detrimental to the horizontal surface. Because you keep learning more. What is, what, is it fair to say, though, that like a stamped concrete is the safest thing because you don't have anything sitting on top of the concrete? That's probably the single most widely used coating in South Florida. And in our office, we call it tile denial. You know, I don't care if you have tile. It's beautiful. My my husband put it down. It was the last thing he did before, he, you know, he's here no more. And, and quite frankly, sometimes, a lot of times you can't tell if it's hollow tile, poor job, or it's a spall. I mean, a lot of times you can the, the, the use of a spray deck, deco deck, art deco, I mean, there's a hundred words for it, and they can make slate patterns, tile patterns, and things of that nature, is the availability to maintain your slab. And again, when we go back to the maintenance of the building is the responsibility association to make sure that the structural elements are maintained. When it's hidden by tile, you just have it masked, and it makes it more difficult not only to see, but to do any work on. Well, I'm glad we've, we covered that because I get that question all the time. So that is one source of moisture consistently being trapped on the, on the concrete, on the balconies. The second question I have, Tim, is the old design 
when developers in the 70s and 80s, even 90s, where they built the pools, they put the pool and even these parks, a lot of heavy plant material and overburden sitting on top of concrete uh, parking structures. And you go underneath and there's water dripping through and there's cracking in the cracking in the columns. First of all, are developers still building that way? I know density is important for them, but to me, that seems like a design flaw. I'm not an engineer, which is why I'm asking you. Does well, it make sense you know, to put generally, a pool? In a high rise, the pool deck is the main, you know, the gym and the pool deck are the two features. You know, that right. that's where it is. Right. So, you know, the question I think the real question is is do the developers or the builders really do the proper construction and waterproofing and things of that nature to provide longevity? You know, as 558s go out and, you know, lawsuits, they're doing better, okay? And they usually have sub-consultants looking at work that go through to try to make sure that they don't get sued because the work is done properly or improperly. But the problem is, Waterproofing, even the best waterproofing is 20 years, 20 years. And by then the developer's long gone, has sold out. I mean, right. And and it's on the association again. And, you know, again, it's an expenditure. Well, the other part, too, is I have we have lovely palm trees on our deck. They're 35 feet high. It's Gilligan's Island all over. Mm -hmm. Well, that palm tree is root balled into that, you know, creating problems in that planter that in itself is is self-destructing. So to get it out, you got to chop it up. To get a new one, you got to get a crane. It's just expensive when it's in the air. But I I have found that the waterproofing and construction of elevated decks has become better. It used to be kind of the wild, wild west, but it has become. But as you get 15 to 20 years, you're replacing it. You're you're doing a, a major rehab. Yeah, it looks fantastic when the developer's selling, and there's not going to be problems for the first maybe two decades. But when you're 40, 50, 60 years old, that building at that point, that's a major problem in terms of the in terms of all that overburden sitting on top of a concrete structure. Right. I, I have a, I have a couple clients right now that have completely removed all the live plants, like you said, the mature plant material, the mature palms, and they're replacing it with silk. And, and, and materials that are, you know, lighter and they're doing a complete waterproofing on that deck. One of the things that um, the 30 year this uh, milestone inspection, they talked about deflection as not being a critical structural. That's not true at all. Deflection, you know, due to sagging or deflection is a huge issue. I mean, everything deflects when it's, you know, when it's spanning, if you if you will. If I'm going to put a planter on a deck, I'm going to put it over a column. So all the weight is transferred right to a vertical element. I'm not stressing the deck. You know, things of that nature have all changed, too. And I don't want to have this quarter acre planter. Right. (laughs) You know, we don't need that either. We can have an artificial grass over turf. Some of the options that are coming up, drip irrigation over regular irrigation. But that's really a good point. And I'll tell you why, because a lot of what we see now, decades later in older buildings who have tried to, you know, they've tried to maintain themselves to remain competitive on the on the market for resales. You know who's doing the planning of where they put that quarter acre planter and not centering it over column? Their garden committee, not the engineer, not the developer. And that's why sometimes we find that things have gone 
completely astray because they have used a garden committee, uh, you know, and people who are not engineers and, and they've just hired contractors to do this work. And it can present safety problems, no? Yes, it can. And, and, and if the drainage doesn't work, you have a lot of plants and then you have a lot of water that builds up and you have an irrigation system feeding the water in there and water is, is heavy and you it know, can cause structural issues. I wanted to touch for a moment on construction going on inside the units. So just as these buildings have aged, you've got people who call, you know, buying an older building, they like the location, but the, you know, the inside of the unit's terrible. It needs to be completely gutted and, and renovated. We have, we're seeing that across the board. And I think you know where I'm going with this, that in the past- You're either, asking excellent questions. <laughs> too, too many boards have taken hands off, just whatever, just show us that your contractor's licensed and insured. Well, we need a little bit more than that because these interior unit renovations can destabilize a building from what I've heard from other engineers, particularly, I guess, depending if they're, if it's total gutting and there's any drilling and it, you tell me post. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, come, I've come across where they've channeled in the floors, they've cut out beams, they've, you know, uh, moved columns, you know, it, it's all over the place. And really what we've helped common condominiums with is set up window installation guidelines. So when a contractor comes in, We've established that you have to use these guidelines, i.e., you got to waterproof under the doors when you take them out. You got to use stainless steel fasteners. You know, you have to have a mud bed. You don't put a door on a shim, things of that nature. We also have waterproofing and tile installation guidelines. You know, and there is no renovation or no structural renovation of any aspect in the building in, inside a unit. Channeling a floor in the middle span of a of a, a a unit can cause significant issues because you're channeling into a an element that may span you know 20 feet so there's a, it could have a deflection issue so uh, there are a lot of things that that boards can do to set up parameters mm -hmm. that all they're saying is if you intend to do this you need to tell us up front or you're going to pay for us to have an engineer come in and, and evaluate the condition that you did. And perhaps periodic inspections of that unit renovation by the association's engineer, running the plans in front of the association engineers and getting that engineer sign off ahead of time. I mean, certainly there needs to be some expanded protocols around unit renovations as opposed to just, you know, are you using a licensed and insured contractor? Right. And I, I can tell you, I had a, a building that was built, I think, in 1969 or something in Palm Beach. And someone bought the whole penthouse, two units, the whole penthouse. And they went and wanted to like completely uh, and they could we had to set them down. And, and I was I was that person that looked at the plan, called them up. You know, let's have a meeting. You can't do that. Here's a revision that here's a revision, revision, revision. And finally, you know, we came into a point where I can't live here not being able to do this. Well, we had to stand up because we weren't going to create a problem because he wanted to make it his dream house, Taj Mahal. We had to look at the association structure. So that was unfortunately, that's how it worked. And it did work out in the long run. But there was a lot of very tense moments because they're passionate about it. You know, there's more than 50 years of case law in the state of Florida saying your home is your castle unless you live in the condo. So yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of the answer to that. I, I did want to ask you, how do you highlight red flags in your reports when you find them? 
I I try to I go through and I've stated specifically, and then I go back in the recommendation. So there's really two places, and, and you're you're at the beginning when you said you should put it up front. That's it. It kind of goes on the thing when I go with a concrete restoration. I try not to tell them how much it costs until the end. So hopefully they listen why we're doing it as opposed to just giving the dollar value. But yeah, at the end of the recommendations, I re-highlight it again and talk about specific things. You know, it would be helpful because, again, you're dealing with volunteer board members with differing levels of experience. As you said, you could have, you know, you can have Fortune 500 CEOs and you can have college students sitting on these boards. It runs the gamut. It would be helpful if there was perhaps more guidance, more clarity in terms of timeline. For instance, sometimes an engineer will say you need emergency shoring work, right? right. You need emergency shoring work. Let's take the garage. By the way, people can get killed in the garage. Chunk of concrete can fall off and hit them in the head walking into their car. So bad things can happen in garages. What is, what's an emergency? Does that mean within 72 hours you need to get this thing shored up within two weeks, two months, two years? Well, I, I, would, say, I would say this is that if it's an emergency, it needs to happen as soon as possible. I, I had another job recently that had a corner column, the building, and had a significant, and it was about 30 feet in the air, so you really couldn't go, but you could see it was bad. We shored that corner and fixed it, and it was a significant problem. But to get the permit, to get the shoring, to get the, the shoring engineer to, you know, that took about six weeks. Now, that that corner column had been there for 60 years. OK, mm -hmm. so four weeks and 60 years isn't, isn't really a long, but that was as fast as it could go. You know, we were waived the permit by the city because it was emergency and things of that nature. You know, getting shoring in a column in a garage, single story garage, whatever, that could happen in a day or two. It is all different. Let's just say that I went to that column and I saw significant cracking that potentially was moving. We'd have to make a call and probably empty the building. That has not happened to me. Okay. But that was under my, you know, direct charge as the engineer that I would have to make a call of that nature if I saw it. But I need our listeners to understand that emergency means post haste. <laughs> It doesn't mean like, oh, Tim, well, you know, we're going to have a meeting in two months and hopefully we'll get a quorum and then and then we'll start, you know, looking around for contractors. And, you know, if you've identified something that's significant where you need emergency shoring and the report really does highlight that it poses a life potential life safety risk. That means now, folks, that means you have to start. And that means asking your engineer to work with the, the city or the county to to expedite. Uh, permits or even waive permits. I had one client, they waived the permit. They they had it installed within 48 hours. The short oh, that's form. great. Well, that may also go back to what we started as, a, as the life safety issue. This potentially could be a life safety issue or, you know, incident. This needs to happen. Now, you know, that may be extreme, but it is what it is. And and, and I'm going to say it's, it's more rare than most, but there are issues that you have to shore without a doubt. But a, a imminent failure is rare. Do you have any follow-up with your clients? So in that instance where you needed emergency shoring, that 60-year-old column, and they say, thanks, Tim, but they never call you back. Is there follow-up involved with that to make sure that they've notified That's the residents? Question. You know, I, I'm, I'm towards the end of my engineering career. I've been doing this a long time, and I like to you know finish the game. But 
no, if, if that happened and they went out, I would be I would be writing a letter to the city because I, I may drive by, I may give it a week, whatever, and go by, but I would I would end up doing the right thing, reporting it because we don't need anyone to get hurt that could we could avoid getting hurt. I mean, that's just where it is. And right. and they don't do it because of a dollar value. A life is much more important than a dollar. So and sometimes it's not even about saving a dollar. It's just that a delusion abounds. I, I've seen a just, lot in my 36 years. I mean, I've seen the brawls. I've seen it all. I've seen the guy who said that um, the $5 million special assessment for all the maintenance and repair work, that he could find somebody for 12000 to make these repairs. <laughs> Stand up at a meeting and say, this is crazy. I have a guy who can do this for 12000 Well, it's, it speaks for itself. But, you know, there's people that will listen to him. You know, and there, there was a handful that there was a handful that listened to me because you, know, you want to hear you want to hear what you want to hear. I've always said that it's a tough job sitting on a board. It's never been tougher than right now, because once these deadlines get closer and and they really have to start writing checks for engineers for the reserve studies, and then of course for all the repair projects, there will be people that unfortunately, will no longer be able to live in some coastal communities. It's just the reality. And, and, and that's exactly it. And that's, I feel bad, but you can't uh, modify the requirement to do your job to consider financial difficulties. You know, you can always work through that outside, but my job is to report what the integrity of the building, what the issues are, what we project the cost is, and how we would do that. How that's addressed in the timeline, I'll work and I'll help and whatever we need to do. But you're absolutely right. Someone that bought this condo for $150,000 45 years ago, you know, it may have passed them by. And it's unfortunate, but that's just where it is because you have to maintain the structure. And our job as council is to figure out how they can pay for these, whether it's going to be a special assessment or a loan, and to make sure we review the contracts. So they're, you know, whoever's doing all this work that they're going to get what they're what they're bargaining for. Yeah. I've had a lot of guests on the podcast talking about the property crisis in property insurance crisis in Florida. It's getting hard to get all kinds of coverage. And I wanted to talk to you about professional liability coverage. Has it gotten much more difficult post-surfside? Yes, it is. And more expensive because of the litigious nature of associations. You know, I, I fix broken buildings. We do our job and then hire a contractor that may or may not do his job. But us as the engineer record or project manager or both, however we are, we're looking, you know, we should have known better. We should have done better. And quite frankly, you know, in, in the contracts, you know, ways, means, and methods is a huge issue. And if contractors are not properly staffed or or stretched over or financially burdened, it affects the work. And the engineer or the professional, I'm going to say, can be burdened by that. And it's unfortunate. I kind of have a saying, if you're in the now, you're too late. I'm a month ahead. I I I want to be a month ahead. And if it gets to where we're okay, I'm still a month ahead because I just have, have seen it all. And I guess what I'd rather say is some some of these uh, contractors 
have their interest in front of the association's interest, and you really need to hold them to the fire. And some of these five million is big money. There's big money involved, and people that are you know financially strapping, they should get what you contracted for. And when there's more and more work out there and things of that nature, it seems like we do more babysitting. It's certainly not business as usual post-surfside. You know, I would imagine for engineers, at least engineers who have their eyes on the ball, that they understand the, the, the heightened risks. And there was an engineer who went out to uh, Champlain Towers, bid on the project, didn't get hired, but got sued. I know that engineer. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. It, it, it's, the, it's the worst case of anything that we do as professionals. To have really done nothing and to be liable for that is, is you know, it's just hard to believe. That engineer is a very good engineer, too. Excellent engineer. But it does underscore that there are significant risks for engineers, especially in this new, in this new landscape. And it's got to be tough to get the amount of coverage that you potentially need. That means- it is. But, you know, at the same token, too, is all I can do is protect what I can protect. You know, my job is not just to say yes or no. My job is to manage the project. My job is to keep the ownership informed and why things are happening up front to try to avert some of the problems that are happening. You're never going to avert every problem. And there's always going to be the one person or the three person in the association that are never happy and, and that's just unfortunate about it. But the liability aspect goes through with property insurance, uh, hurricane insurance, all of this. Everyone is CYAing themselves. It's just how it is right now. I would love to sit and talk to you about hurricane insurance. And right now it's going through with hurricane insurance. They're going in and beating their liability by telling you you need to replace your roof. No ands, ifs, or buts. You can have a, per- a perfectly good roof. I mean, it's old. But they don't care. It's 20 years. We don't care if you maintain it. It's 20 years old. We don't want the liability. You're hitting a nerve with me. I just had to replace a 25-year-old roof personally, and it was it was fine. But yeah, I had that I had that conversation with my insurance agent. Yeah, and I bet it was rather loud. <laughs> yeah, it was it wasn't pleasant. Let me put it that way. Right. Well, so. let me ask you last question. What can the average community resident do to become more aware of their building's condition? Well, I would just say this. I I mean, of course, look around. But the other thing, ask questions. A crack, is it it just a surface crack? Is it a structural crack? Where is it located? How big is it? Is it bleeding rust? I mean, these are basic questions that, um, you know, oh, that's been like that for years. Well, if it's been like that for years, chances are that it's not very good. But, you know, it's pretty basic. You know, the other thing, you know, I got to hire, find a qualified uh, professional um, to come through. And it doesn't have to be, and I'm not just talking about milestone. It, it can be a walk around and ask questions. That person should be able to answer you in basic terms. And if, if, if it's a more complicated matter, look, I need to do this or I look at the plans. I can't really tell you, but, you know, this is what I see. And, and, and take action because it's cheaper now than it is later. And if there's an agenda item on your board or membership meeting that relates to the building safety, to an engineering report, I would urge people to attend those meetings. Absolutely. It's not a meeting you it's not a meeting you want to miss. So how can people find you? Tim at ATdesigns.net. Uh, we are located in North Palm Beach. My phone number is uh, 561-881-7280. 
I your phone's going to be ringing. Your phone's going to be ringing off the hook, Tim. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform or visit TicketToTheBoard.com for more ways to connect. Mm-hmm.